0: This Advent season, this month at Village Church, we've been looking at five stories tucked away in Matthew's genealogy. We've learned lessons of reconciliation, restoration, reunion, hope, grace. Last night at our annual candlelight communion service, which has been celebrated at Village Church, since 1968, we looked at the the beautiful story of Ruth, and finally, next Sabbath, the mother of Christmas, in a most divine way, Mary. Today, the genealogy of Jesus, recorded in the first verses of Matthew, bring us. Only, the only unnamed mother of Christmas. By the way, a disclaimer, lest you think the focus of our study this week has little to do with Christmas, it really does. It may not seem like a Christmas story to you, but it is. You just have to look a little bit beneath the bizarreness of it. So this is how it goes. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, Judah, Jesse. And on it goes, the father of David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Three observations from that last line, if you will. First, David's mother is not mentioned. She's not named. Other notable ladies are, three of them, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. Not this one. Notice again, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's as though Matthew, writing the account, says... I think I'll not mention this one. He'd already mentioned three notorious mothers. This one, this narrative, this story was just a bit too embarrassing. Sometimes that's sort of the way it is with our families. There's someone in the family tree, you know, someone who's drawn too far outside the boundary lines. That one, you know, we talk of that one. We don't even say that one's name. We just say that one. In Matthew's genealogy, he refers to 46 individuals and names them, each one specifically. They all have names. Every key person is named, except one, just one. And we know her name because we know her story. But if you didn't know the story, if you were uninformed about this backstory, you'd read this, these verses and not think much about it, not give it a shrug. That's the first observation. Second one that jumps out at me is that this unnamed woman's. Husband is named. Interesting. It says, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, that's not all that surprising because genealogies in those days were always tr- traced through the father. <clears throat> so, it's not too unusual <clears throat> to leave her out, except for the fact that the father that was mentioned, the husband that was mentioned, was a foreigner. Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. He was part of the Hittite tribe, a clan of warlike people who were at times aligned with Israel and sometimes were in opposition to them. But nevertheless, he was a, a foreigner. He was definitely beyond the boundary of royal pedigree. Third, focuses on. Two words. Two words that lead us into a crucial backstory. And if we miss this, we've missed something really important. Again, Matthew 1, 6. David was a father of Solomon whose mother had been, Uriah's wife, had been, had been. That leaves us to question, what happened? What had been? What is Matthew saying that this David was the father of Solomon, but Uriah had been the husband of the mother of Solomon. Interesting. Every family has a bit of this, I guess you might say it, a bit of shame. Every family has more than one skeleton in the closet. The Kinneys have them. Maybe we have more than our share. Absent family members that we don't talk about. I have some too, personally. Skeletons, times in my own life that I'd rather not mention, and I'm sure not going to tell you. I wish they weren't there. I wish they weren't. Many of us struggle with those kind of things, things in our past. Some of us are crippled by those things. Sometimes the past is so painful that we just shove it under the rug and try to pretend it never happened. But what I've come to learn is this. Denying the past only prolongs the pain. Instead, if we could face our past, we can learn from it. And by God's help, we can use it to find purpose in life. So, that's the story of Christmas. That God, in the gift of His Son, our shameful past is repurposed God uses even those dark spots even our shameful moments to grow us in his image in the likeness of Jesus
1: Did you know that your baby boy would someday walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you Son that you deliver will we'll soon deliver you Mary. Did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy? A storm with his hand. Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kissed your little baby, then you kissed the face. see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again. The lame will leave, the dumb will speak, the praises of Heaven's perfect land, this sleeping child, your holy is the great.
0: So what had been? We're back to Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What about this had-been skeleton that Matthew chooses here to expose? It's likely a story so well known to us that we really don't need to hear its telling. So I'll be brief. Besides, what does this have to do with Christmas? Plenty. Second Samuel 11 says, preparing us for the drama, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabab. But David remained in Jerusalem. Think of those words. Israel's army is laying siege to an enemy city. And for reasons that we will never know, David chooses to remain in Jerusalem. David, the warrior king. David, the courageous ruler. David, the one who inspires his troops David, the one who rallies his men to one victory after another. Now, his troops are engaged, but David's in Jerusalem. It's almost as though the writer is saying that David isn't where he ought to be. And his eyes are focused where they ought not to be focused. And here begins the story that one Bible scholar, Richard Rice, calls Bath, Bed, and Beyond. <laughs> David inquires regarding this one's identity. He had time. He had time to turn, to repent, to, to erase these shameful, heinous, Desires. Eliam, Bathsheba's father, he was one of David's most trusted friends and much celebrated lieutenants. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, a devoted soldier, one of the one of the valiant men, the great men of David. They're both risking their lives to advance David's kingdom while he's back luring at their wife and their daughter. Whatever her heart, Bathsheba had little choice. It wasn't her place to say no, especially not to David. The king was supreme, ruler above any other authority. The the power imbalance Was enormous. It was a colossal abuse of power. David ignores. He ignores the bells and the whistles, the sirens, and does the unthinkable. It's an act of pure, self centered hedonism. And he tramples God's law. He kills. He lies. He dishonors, he covets, he commits adultery, he defames God. And the chapter ends with a short, terse sentence that moves the drama to another level. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. While no human being possessed the authority or the power to address the evil done by this king, God did. This was an evil that could not be overlooked. So one afternoon, the prophet Nathan made an unexpected visit to the palace. He confronts the king with the story that puts David in the center of his crime and the guilt that it incurs. And he says to David, you're the man. You're the man. David's response reveals something of the sensitive conscience of this one that was called the man after God's own heart. For all of David's manly, ego-driven bravado, for all of David's tough, battle-hardened conscience, underneath, underneath, there was a heart sensitive to the pleading of God. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned. When confronted with his sin, David is repentant. David is is heartbroken. The narrative in Samuel doesn't record much of the inner workings of David's mind. But Psalm 51 sure does. It records some of the most sorrowful churnings of any human's heart. It includes some of those most heartfelt, wrenching, moving words in Scripture. In in essence, in essence, Psalm 51 is a Christmas story. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that your right and your verdict and your, is justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast heart within me. You do not delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burn offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. The consequence of David's abuse of power will reverberate for generations. The child born of adultery would die. David's family would be embroiled in endless public, humiliating scandals. Sin creates brokenness. But the story of Christmas, the story of Christmas is that God in human flesh came to bring forgiveness for sin. And He now lives to bring hope and healing and purpose in and through and in spite of all of our pain.
2: What can we do?
0: Because of God's grace and mercy, things are being repaired between David and God. But God isn't done yet. Another child is born from this marriage. Second Samuel twelve twenty four. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Jedidiah. Loved by the Lord. Hmm. Solomon Jedediah. This is the child that Matthew refers to in his gene- genealogy. A disgraceful, dysfunctional family plagued with dark sin and secrets and shame, somehow caught up in the lineage of Jesus. 30 centuries later, or so, we find ourselves in similar straits here in Walla Walla. Families, disgraceful secrets, dark dysfunction, great challenge. Everybody has some of that. Maybe one, two, 10, maybe 20. Choices made, habits perpetuated, sins sown, and the family's reputation has been soiled. And then we come to Christmas and we get all (laughs) spit-shined and polished, just like it ought to be. But maybe we're bearing sorrow and knowing shame. The way we, we like to handle it, of course, is to cover it up, to hide it. Don't let anybody see it. We want our, co- our kids to behave so that no one will know it. We don't want our story out so we make sure and manicure it. But then we come to David and Bathsheba and their tarnished reputation. To the questionable genealogy of Jesus. To the Christmas story. And my story. And yours. How does God respond? He sends a baby to be born in Bethlehem. Become, who will become the transitional figure, not just in David's family, but he'll be the traditional figure in all of human history. This one, this one, will transform what's dark in the past with what is light in the future. This one will transform shame from the past into what will be joy in the future. This one, God sends this one, a baby. And this baby is the transforming power so that you who have been so deeply yearning and praying for is here, today. Here, with this mother of Christmas that's never named in the book of Matthew God pushes aside the unattainable desire that we have a perfect family it's like he's saying hey there's no perfect perfect families on earth not in the Bible not in all of reality Norman Rockwell may have painted it perfect but ours Ours is a series of broken relationships that need redemption. That's our reality. And that's our God. Our God, who didn't write an ancestry of perfect people and leave us all feeling utterly hopeless, saying, what are we supposed to do? It's as though the Spirit of God was hovering over the shoulder of Matthew as he scratched out the genealogy and said, Matthew, be honest. Be truthful. Include the marginal. Mention the misfits. Write down the shameful ones. Because I want to send this message to everyone that they're welcome here The God we serve is a God of redemption. And so Matthew did. He traced those names. He remembered those stories. And through those, that says, God redeemed his family. And since that, he's been doing that again and again and again with your family and mine. He did it in ancient Israel with David. He's doing it here in Kali's place this morning. So that's the message of Christmas. And that's Christmas, isn't it? That, that's the story of our God who will take a battered, beaten, and bruised, fallen human being and turn him into a living legacy of his grace and love. That is Christmas. Father, just as you sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, help us to clear the path in our hearts too. Show us the distractions in our lives that lock out all-out worship of you this Advent. Lord, we await your coming. As we celebrate the first Advent, the first coming, we look forward to the day when We'll see you face to face. We imagine what it will be like. Give us hearts, Lord, that look for your coming every day. Help us live our lives where we constantly seek your presence. Our offering to you today is our righteous life, for we know we are only clean because of Jesus. Show us today how we need to be refined, purified, forgiven. Give us strength to ask for forgiveness and then change our ways. In Jesus' name, amen.